Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 98 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. This episode is an interview with two Canadian writers who were amongst my first guests on the podcast back in 2014. Marie Billado and Derek Kunsken are based in Ottawa and write speculative fiction, science fiction and fantasy. Marie is an author and storyteller. Her space opera Destiny Trilogy was a two-time finalist for the Aurora Awards, won the bronze medal in the Forward Book Awards, and her works have been translated into French and Chinese. And her latest serialised fairy apocalypse book, Nye, was an international bestseller. Marie is also a storyteller and has told stories across Canada in theatres, tea shops, at festivals and under disco balls. She's won story slams with personal stories, has participated in epic tellings at the National Arts Theatre and has adapted classical material. Marie co-hosts the Roundtable podcast with Dave Robinson, co-chairs Ottawa's speculative fiction literary convention, CanCon, with Derek Skunskun, and co-chairs Ottawa's cheese series with Nicola Lavange and Matt Moore, and is also the deputy publisher of TEGG, the Ed Greenwood Group. You can find out more about Marie at www.mariebillado.com. That's M-A-R-I-E-B-I-L-O-D-E-A-U.com. Derek Kunskun writes science fiction and fantasy in Gatineau, Quebec. His short fiction has appeared in Analogue, Beneath Ceaseless Skies and primarily in Asimov's science fiction. His short fiction has been translated many times into Russian, Czech, Polish and Mandarin and has been podcast from such reprint markets as Starship Sofa, Escape Pod, Pseudopod and Podcastle. His stories have been selected for multiple years' best anthologies for science fiction and horror, and in 2013, he won the Asimov's Award. He has novel news that he can't discuss yet, but if you follow him on Twitter, at Derek Kunskun, or at DerekKunskun.com, announcements will surely happen soon there. That website is D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N.com. So without further ado, we'll get on with the podcast. And welcome again, Derek and Marie, to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thanks for having us. This is great. Yes, thank you. Well, it's great to have an opportunity to talk to both of you today. And I've got a whole bunch of questions that I want to cover in this interview. Just thinking about how we should think of ourselves as writers, the kind of mental approach to that, and how we should look after ourselves physically, mentally, and spiritually. So taking into account the whole of who we are and how we should think and how we should be as writers. And I want to start by just asking you both, how important you think it is for us writers to think of ourselves as writers and to describe ourselves as writers to other people? For me, when I was an aspiring writer, and even now, I mean, you, I don't think you can be a successful artist of any kind, including writer, without having doubts and insecurities. You have to have a tremendous amount of, of baseless confidence at the same time as you have crushing doubts and insecurities about whether you're good enough. So in my head... I, at some point, maybe I was 25, I caught into the idea that if you write, you're a writer. And while that is a good bomb for the inside, I never introduced myself as a writer until I actually got published. Because I think for every one of us who is aspiring, the, you know, we can find a thousand or ten thousand other aspiring writers, some of whom we think are going to, you know, make it and some of whom we think are just dipping their toe in and will never actually go the distance. And I think while I was an aspiring writer, I 
didn't want to put myself above that mass of people who were unpublished. And, and so to me, I just said it in my head. But once I was a published writer, then I could say, well, yes, now I'm a published writer. And that was a different sort of thing. And was, But both those things were part of my identity all the time. What about you, Marie? What's, what's, what's your view on this? Yeah, I agree with, uh, I agree with what Derek said. And it's definitely it, – it's a difficult thing to take ownership of being a writer – I think it is important to identify as a writer, at least in your head, because if you never do, then you're not taking ownership of what it means to be a writer. Being a writer isn't just a label. It's not just a word. It is, it's a lot of actions. It's a lot of doings, a lot of sitting down and writing and getting the work done and targeting those final products as well. Um, so if you take ownership of what it means to be a writer and you think yourself as a writer, you introduce yourself as a writer and you have enough of that shame pride balance that you <laughs> want to show people that not only have you mentioned, I am a writer, but look, I can get the work done and I can get there. Then, yeah, I mean, if you introduce yourself as a writer, chances are more likely that you will work your ass off to get published because uh, you have that pride shame balance, which I think is important for all artists. Okay, now if we switch the emphasis from the writer to the writing, as writers, what do you think is the correct attitude that we should have to our work so that we neither are too falsely humble about it or critical of it, and neither do we think that we're the best author that's ever walked the earth? (laughs) Um, I (laughs) I personally think that the artistic realm and the commercial realm especially is particularly good at popping any ego balloons that you might develop along the way Uh, (laughs) honestly the thing I found the most useful at this point in my career is to look at each book as something that I love but as a product that I'm giving out to someone so the writing and the work is leading to a final product which I have to get as good as it can so I can find a home for it so it can be sold and hopefully loved and hopefully make some money but at the end of the day I'm I'm, I'm producing something much like when I organize an event I manage some events on the side when I organize an event I'm targeting to get a good event same thing here I'm targeting to get a good product so it keeps you very grounded because what you're doing is something that millions of us have done and will continue to do so when you put it that way it's not that special which is a little bit sad (laughs) i think uh, to add to that i think the market like if people are being honest with themselves the market will quickly tell you a lot of things now in the beginning when you're just getting form rejections you don't know if you are one hundredth of 100 people or if you're 50th of 100 people or even if you're let's say 30th or 20th because a form rejection letter will be sent to all of those people it's only when you start getting into the top 10 and you start getting you know personalized rejection letters where it says this wasn't bad but it wasn't for me or good luck with this or send me something else then you start to get a sense of you're getting closer and closer to publication in terms of quality and where you where you fit And I think once you get published, you also have a good sense because, again, I think it's really important to be honest with with yourself. For example, when I was looking to get published in science fiction short stories, there are professional markets which pay a certain amount, which have a certain amount of readership. There are semi-pro markets, and I targeted one, two, three of those. And then there were for the love markets, which pay almost nothing, or the markets that are just for exposure. And... 
I looked at the incentives of those publishers and I realized that, you know, a professional market that's shelling out what we call professional cash, they have, they're, they're going to be honest with me. They're not going to take something that's not good enough for them that they don't think they can make money off of. Whereas, and, and the semi pro paid less, but it's still, not an insignificant amount of money but I I never sent my stuff for free because I didn't feel that that would be a measure of success because there's there's nothing on the other side I measured it a bit that way but at the same time I, I also looked at how widely I was read. So in some of the early magazines I was published in, their readership was 500 to 1000 people and you know whether that was only other readers reading it who knows some of the other places I've been published have readerships of, you know, 20,000 or something. And that would be because ultimately we, we don't write just for the product to be there. We write for it, for somebody to read it. And, and I think, you know, the, the market can tell you a bit about where you, you fit into the ecosystem. Okay, now we know that writing is going to take up a lot of time and a lot of effort if we're going to take it seriously. So how have both of you evaluated the importance of your writing against the importance of the other really core things in your life, whether it's work or family or friendships or whatever it is? Derek, you can take that one if you'd like. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I balance things well or in a healthy <laughs> way. Um, I, in my head, writing is in constant competition for my free time against work, against parenting, against, you know, relationships, uh, every other leisure activity that exists, and even reading, which is incredibly important to writers to do. So I'm not sure I've balanced it well. In the end, I think at one point, maybe 10 years ago, I said, well, I'm going to do three things really well. One is my job, one is writing, one is being a dad. And currently on my sabbatical, I'm, I've reduced that to just two things, you know, parenting and writing. But I don't know that I've ever balanced it well. Just want to pick that up on that just for a moment, Derek, actually. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment and how you came to do that? The sabbatical that I've, I've taken is self-funded. So I had to save up money and reduce costs and stuff like that. But the principal reason is to, to just be a better dad, spend more time with my son. And that's been very, very, very successful. Huge amount of time with him. But the fact is, he is in school, so that gives me about six hours a day. I drop him off at school and then pick him up, and that gives me six hours where I can use that for writing. And if I'm disciplined, I can usually get four and a half to five good hours out of those six. And um, that's that's what I try and do. But you were saying just then that you still don't think you'll get you get the balance right. Was it, is that correct? Well, when, the first half, like if we're speaking psychologically, in the first half of my sabbatical, I found out I turned into a hermit because I would take every moment that I could to work on writing. I saw less friends. I didn't go date anybody. You know, it's it, that's really what it became. And so at the start of 2017, I've been trying to make real efforts to on the on the evenings when I might be a little more free to to go see friends and talk about writing and, you know, get, get out a bit. I'm not unhappy with the choices I made in the first half or the first 18 months of my sabbatical. But I think long term, I have to be aware that there's some dangers there that if I get more and more solitary, I'm going to be on a path where, you know, I'm going to eventually have to get a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven forbid. <laughs> okay. Um, how, how does this work for you, Brie, what are, in the, the context you're in? What, what, what are the sort of choices that you feel you've had to make? I have a lot of cats, Andrew. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I can see which one of you is the cat lover now. Can't yes. Um, I, it's definitely something, a balance that you keep needing to relearn and kind of reshuffle as well. I mean, I, I have 
multiple facets to what I do in a day. Writing is one of them. Uh, I'm a freelancer as well because the writing doesn't always pay the bills. I'm a storyteller as mm. well. Uh, so I, I put on shows and make money that way. Um, and, and, and I do just a bunch of different little tidbits. And so my work days can tend to go up to 16 hours a day, which isn't necessarily the healthiest thing. So <laughs> balance is a more difficult things. Now, I don't have uh, children, so that's a plus. I have a niece and nephew, however, that I do try to see once every two weeks at minimal, at least on FaceTime. Um, they live 20 minutes away, so it's pretty sad if that's all I can pull off. But at, at the end of the day, I think it's a matter of figuring out what type of person you are, uh, what motivates you, what refreshes you, what refills your well. So seeing people often is part of that, getting different entry into your your regular thinking, because otherwise you get into little spin loops in your head and it would be beneficial for you to go out and talk to other people and, and break out of that. And also, I mean, when you're celebrating your writing successes, who do you want to be in the room with you? That's important, too. In my experience, relation, most relationships don't actually need that much tending to, but people need to feel like they're they're still a part of, of your day-to-day. They're still a part of what makes you tick, what makes you go. A simple text message to a friend can sometimes be enough to at least keep that link going because otherwise it can be a a lonely road and that's not necessarily the wisest thing to do the writing is great but it is a lonely in your head profession so it's healthy for you and for the writing to get out of it i'm i'm sensing from what you've both said that there's a dynamic balance here that you have to keep attending to this stuff and it is a question of balancing various aspects of life so you don't end up going to one extreme would you say that was correct yeah I i definitely agree with that now, you briefly mentioned your storytelling there, Marie, and I know when we, we talked last time, we, we had a little conversation about, about this, but I'm interested to explore this a little bit more, actually. Do you think that the fact that you are a storyteller, somebody who actually speaks out the words, has impacted on you as a writer? And if it, if it has, how has that happened? You know, I'd say definitely, which it's kind of funny when I started, when I entered storytelling, I'd been trying for about five years to be professionally published and I was getting nowhere fast. And I learned about storytelling and I thought, hey, if I become a storyteller, nobody can, like Canadians are generally too polite to walk out on me even if I suck. <laughs> so they'll have to listen to my stories. Um, and then I thought as well that, hey, uh, if I start telling stories, I will get better at drafting stories and the two will work each other and I can tell some stories and and sell them as written works. Now, what I've learned is my initial thought was from my initial plan of storytelling, A, is that it is true. Most people are definitely too polite to walk out even when you suck. So that was totally (laughs) that totally worked out. But B, the, the oral traditions don't actually translate well into the written tradition because, as you might imagine, you tell a lot more when you're storytelling. And you also, you have to work down your story so that it's easy to follow when someone is telling it. So subplots, secondary characters, a lot of that, those layers have to come out because it's too much to follow. It's too complicated and complicated story arcs do like flipping back and forth in time or things that are easier to follow in writing because you might be able to reference back and see the coolness. You can't do that in storytelling. So by the end, you just have an audience that's going, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> um, the one thing that storytelling did really help me with, and, and this has proved a boon in, uh, in all of my writing, is the clarity of the story. In storytelling, you're not memorizing your story. So for me, I see it as a thread. And if I'm clear on what the thread of my story is, so what I need to make sure pulls through the length of my telling, and then I just 
hook on every single aspect of my story and all of the main plot points to that thread, the story will be clear to my my listeners by the end of it. And if I use that in a novel and I have that, I'm still clear on that thread and then I just add a lot more layers to make it more intricate, more interesting, the story will still be clear to my readers, however, by the time they get to the end of it. And that's a more enjoyable experience and wondering what the heck happened, where this character come from and, and stuff like that. So that is one great strength that I've learned from the storytelling thinking about sort of relationships with other people what advice would you have or what insights do you guys have on the best way for a writer to relate to another writer so i'm thinking here a little bit about not feeling competitive help being helpful to each other how how does that dynamic work i don't think it's a truism that we are in competition with other writers it's it's not like if i get a story in a magazine somebody else will not a magazine runs every month um it's not like if i get a book deal someone else will not get a book deal they 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 need good books so really it's it's quality uh, that determines how much you're getting published rather than whether you're the first to the post or something so i would say that i get a lot more good things out of other writers than I don't even know what bad things I would say I could ever get out of other writers. I mean, just being around people who are switched on and ambitious and trying and creative and are struggling with different things the same way as I am, it's all therapeutic and it's all feeling like we're all in this together. And and it, it isn't competitive in any way. Where I think it also helps me is envy is an emotion that I think all writers feel. I certainly do. So... And and I would, you know, if you're Stephen King or Neil Gaiman, arguably top of their games, but there are many games, right? So I'm, it's quite possible that Stephen King looks at some other writer and says, wow, I wish I could do what he did. So, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're at the very top of your own game. You're always going to find somebody who does one or two things different than you or whatever and that you're going to you're going to have some envy. And I use envy as a motivator when I see somebody who writes a story that I think is really great or when I see some other writer that's praised. You know, I want to be praised. I want to write a story that that's that that is that good, and I I turn that envy into drive, and so that whether I'm impressed or not impressed with somebody I meet, inevitably it just adds more fuel to the engine to me. Sure. Okay. What about you, Marie? Yeah, I, I completely agree with what uh, with what Derek said there, and and one of the things that I found from the writing community, honestly, is. There are so many supportive people out there from people who are New York Times bestsellers to people who are just starting out is there is this sense that we're all in this together. And if we support each other and help each other achieve the next level, it's good for all of us uh, because you remember who your friends are. Right. Uh, so I, I found the writing community has been amazing and very supportive. And just, I mean, there are always those who won't because they see it as like, if I succeed, then, you know, uh, that means I'm number one and. If somebody else succeeds, I can't succeed. But overall, there is enough room for all of us to play. And it is a matter of quality at the end of the day. And we all get better by working with other writers to become better, to develop our skill set when it comes to writing. And what do you guys think are perhaps the one or two things that a writer can do to be really helpful to other writers or with other writers? You know, just be available. If someone asks you a question and you have the time, uh, I think writers can generally be helpful that way to other writers even if they just answer a question and often it's it feels hard like people shouldn't feel shunned when a writer doesn't answer to them on a facebook query or messenger like sometimes they are swamped like there is that feeling but um, 
at a convention if you're available then if you have two seconds to just answer a question or to just share a blog post or share a new release or get the excitement out there leave a review like all of those basic things you hear about i think those are all helpful to everyone I think, too, that um, it's super important to just be not a jerk, right? I mean, this applies to all of life. <laughs> but, I mean, just be friendly, be open, meet everyone. Yeah, now that is good advice. Now, we've talked about balancing writing with other important things in life. But what about the opposite problem? How do we preserve our writing time so that it doesn't get crowded out by other stuff? Uh, Marie actually taught me something, I guess, maybe eight years ago, ten years ago which was meeting in the morning before work to write. And I would then write every day, you know, with Marie in a coffee shop. And then each of us would go off to our jobs. And I kept that going for the next six or eight years, getting 300 to 500 words per morning and then getting in a full day's work. So you just, what, get up that little bit earlier, do half an hour, an hour, get those words done. And then and then that was just part of your routine. An hour, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think it comes down to prioritizing the writing because like you said it is easy to get stuff crowded out so uh, for me when I, I did writing in the mornings for years uh, and the idea was that if I did that first thing in the morning while there was nothing else happening before going to the day job and before being tired out from the day job and potentially wanting to go to social occasions in the evenings or whatever then at least I'd gotten that important part of my day done with um, and one of the questions that I've started asking myself now is I don't have a set of schedule now. I have a lot more priorities struggling for uh, being king of my day. What uh, One of the things I ask myself now is how do I want to feel by the time I go to bed tonight? What do I want to have accomplished? And a lot of times, if for some reason I haven't written during the day, I'll ask myself that just as I'm about to settle in to write or to settle in to sleep, to uh, read. And uh, I, I actually put down 300 to 500 words right there and then because it, it's that or bust. Like the whole day was wasted because I didn't do my primary job, which is to write. Okay. Now, Derek, your situation is a little bit different in that you've literally, for now, cut out the whole work thing and you are on sabbatical. But I think your sabbatical is coming to the end later this year. Is that correct? It was supposed to go till Labor Day of 2017, but I've just started the paperwork to extend it a little longer because I've had some writing money come in, which ought to be able to keep me, you know, fed and housed for an additional year. Oh, okay. Cool. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing that the, the kind of secret strategy here is never to go back to work almost. Oh, no, no. I have to go back. I mean, oh dear, okay. I have a good job and I would never want to try and live through the next five years on just my writing income. I, I think it would be possibly doable, but very difficult. But I mean, ultimately finishing paying off my house, if in 10 years I need a new car, putting my son through university, those are all going to be expenses where a real job is really going to make a difference. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, Marie, you kind of alluded to the need to get enough done each day kind of thing and so that you feel like you've achieved something. But a question to both of you, really, Marie, you can perhaps answer this first. How, how do you cope if you fail to meet a challenge or a target? 
the main thing with that I find, and this is a learned skill, it's not easy, is not to start by just berating yourself, not to start by saying, I suck, I can't do it, I, I can't meet any of my goals, why do I even try, like all of those kind of primary impulses that we get, I guess, from failing tests in grade school. Um, <laughs> so it's to cut away from that. And now what I try to do is I kind of skip over that or, or only give it 30 seconds to a minute. And then I look at what happened why did I miss my goals and how can I do better tomorrow? Is it a lack of resolve? Did I not block out all the other distractions? Do I need to change the location I'm doing it in? Was the goal just not achievable and I was an idiot to set it in the first place? Don't berate yourself for being an idiot there. Move on. And then just be realistic with the next day's goals because the trick with missing goals is the more you miss them, the harder it is to ever reach them because you get so down on yourself that you always fail. But the reality of it is you're setting your own goals and you're the one missing them so you need to align your goal setting self with your missing goal self and then figure out how you can get the two to chat to each other and then just realign the next day right away don't wait a day don't think you're, I'm going to take a day off because I'm failing so much like you know what you did you're not an idiot you've been following yourself all day and seeing what you did wrong so be honest with yourself you don't need to tell anyone else and then the next day just go back in there with a new plan and new impulse control if whatever you need to make that goal happen more coffee whatever it is you need but don't berate yourself because that that is an endless spinny cycle of non-helpfulness. Do you feel as if you've had to learn to set yourself more realistic targets over time? or Do you think you've overdone, I've set yourself too high targets in the past at all? <laughs> oh, yes, I am a master of that. What I've learned is I'm ambitious to a fault. I want to get it all done and I want it all right now. Um, and I've learned some patience, a little bit of patience, not a whole lot. But what I have learned for myself, and this is for me, and this is from years of, of working with myself and my goal-setting self and my goal-missing self, is I'm good at the small goals each day, like 500, 1,000 words, 2,000 words even. Those are all achievable for me depending on what I'm trying to do. But once I'm ready to run and to accomplish that, that last usually about 30 to 40,000 words, the best thing I can do for myself is just hide away and block out the whole world and get it done. Because that's the point where if I can't madly dash to the end, I imagine, which is what I do in a marathon if I was a runner, if I can't do a mad dash, then it's going to rob me of all that creative energy. So now I see this kind of the build up at a little bit every day and then you get to the end and bam, you just knock it out of the park. Um, I, the most I've ever done was 45,000 words in three days. I, I think my brain took two weeks to recover from that. I don't recommend it. <laughs> so what do you do to place yourself into an environment where you can do that, like dash to the finish line then? It depends on how you are doing, like what your financial abilities are um, and, and what you have available to you. Personally, what I do and what I still love to do is I would go to a convent. Um, the convents have silent retreats. Uh, they don't generally insist that you go to any religious service, which is which is good. They have meals included in the price of the room. It's just a little room, right? All that you have is a desk, a room, a, a sink, and then shared uh, facilities, usually three meals at specific times, and you can take a silent retreat. So basically, I wind up going there without internet because the internet is evil, so much fun, but so evil. Uh, <laughs> without internet, without phone, without um, any access to television or anything like that, and all 
I bring are my writing notes, my laptop, and uh, some books to get me unstuck, like books on writing, not not fiction books, because I'm sure those would be more interesting. So I cut out all other distractions. And and at some point from just sitting there and getting bored enough, I I will start to write and I I won't stop. Because at some point, your mind will go, well, we might as well just write. I mean to myself, I think is the answer to the question. Yeah, that's not at all the way I do it. So what do what do you do then, Terry? So I don't fail any of my goals um, because I set them low enough that I know that they are achievable every day. Because I know that my brain works on if I achieve a goal one day, I'll go to bed happy, and if I fail it, I won't be happy. So I set my goals low enough that they're achievable, and even I can shoot over some days. And it's the discipline, the routine. So even if I'm super excited about the ending, I'm still only going to write what I do every day. But I, I think, you know, I, Marie has her process. I know other writers who write, for example, one guy I know only writes once a week. He takes that day off of work, and he writes the entire day. Other people I know are a little more random about when they write. But one thing I did a few years ago when my work was really busy was I set myself a goal of 350 words per day, every day, day in, day out. That 350 words you can get done in about half an hour. And I usually overshot it, and I made a pact with another writer for two years to do that. And 350 words a day for even one year gets you, I think, around 120,000 words per year. That's a lot of words. Yeah. So yeah. that's and, – and it's a very, very achievable goal. Like at no point – Entering the writing for the day, are you ever going to say, oh, I can't get 350? I mean, 350 is a sneeze to Marie. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it's it's achievable. And I think knowing the way I react to incentives and how I like filling in charts and saying, yep, today I got 385 or today I got 425 and, and being happy about that extra 75 words that keeps me going and sustains me over the year. Um Marie, I want to come back to you just for a moment and talk about your experience of going on retreat to write. And I know that we, we talked about this the last time I, I spoke with you. And I know that you have a, or certainly then, you had a kind of very particular approach to it. So I think you said last time that like, if you arrive on a Friday evening, you don't actually do any writing. You're just kind of preparing yourself, as it were. And then it's the it's for the rest of the weekend, you're really kind of getting stuck into the writing. So is that still the case? And can you just talk us through how you engage with the, your writing over that weekend? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's this, um, <laughs> I love movies. Uh, you know, there's this period, this moment in a lot of movies when there's a change, a shift of worlds. You're stepping from one world into an extraordinary world, like like Narnia or something. And often there's that moment of, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. Or there's a swirly vortex of colors, depending on the special effects budget of the movie, going on around <laughs> you. So I see the first line as that. And what it's necessary to do is to break out from your day-to-day to leave your real life behind because you've just come from home, you've just come from work, you've just come from different worries, anxieties, things that need to be done, to-do lists that have nothing to do with your book. And all of those things are still percolating at the back of your head because that was at the forefront of your mind. So when you arrive at the retreat, what I do basically is on the way to the retreat, I usually don't do it further than two hours away um, because over two hours, you're wasting too much time just traveling to the retreat. So two hours maximum. Um, and then I listen to a lot of music. I play. I don't I don't set any expectations for my head because my head needs a little bit of playtime too. And then I get to the retreat and I just let my mind sit while focused on the story. Usually I'll start reviewing my notes for the story. Where am I at? 
What am I doing? What are my characters up to? My notes make no sense. Make no notes that make more sense. I review some of my writing because I, I don't start fresh. I don't start projects fresh at a retreat. I've got something going on. So I start reviewing some of my writing. Where am I at? Where do I need to go tomorrow? And then I just usually I leave through some books on writing, whatever I feel will resonate most with me, something on character, on plotting, on on creating a setting, on upping your tension or whatever. And I just I flip through it. I don't start a full read through. I just flip through it. I grab some ideas and usually one or two things will just make me think, oh, this would be cool if and you start to feel I, I don't think this is just me, but you start to feel like the story is taking hold of your mind, meaning that most of your thought patterns go back towards the story. You're not thinking about that thing that's late at work. You're not thinking about uh, your mom's sore feet. You're not thinking about <laughs> the mat on your cat's back that you probably should have brushed before you left home. You're not thinking about those things. What you're thinking about then is the story, your characters, what are they going to do? What are you going to do tomorrow? And then I go to bed with all that rumbling about in my head and I like to think overnight my subconscious keeps working because Lord knows the rest of me ain't working. And <laughs> that in the morning when I sit down to write and I do so pretty much spot immediately, um, I, I'm ready to just regurgitate whatever needs to be on, on, the, uh, on the page and perhaps regurgitation is not the best word there, but that's what it feels <laughs> like sometimes and then i go from there okay and are you there till like sunday afternoon or something like that is that how it works or yeah usually what i do is um i used to do friday night to sunday afternoon but i found i needed two full days to really push through <clears throat> so now i mostly do um friday night to monday till they kick me out usually around lunchtime uh last time what i did is i actually went with a friend i usually go by myself because i i like people i do um but i don't like them in my space when i'm writing because they there's still some social demands from them when they're there, right? So I go by myself and I don't have to answer to any just even body cues or anything. I'm alone. But last time I went with a friend for an entire week, I'd never done either of those things. And it, it worked out quite well, actually, mostly because I went in there thinking, I'm going to get this done. I don't care what happens. It's going to get done. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> um, Derek, have you ever been on on, on a weekend retreat at all? Have you, have you ever done this sort of thing? Yeah, I've done weekend retreats uh, with our writers group. Um, uh, there's there's no special effects for me. And as soon as I get there on Friday night, I start because I also have the story in my head. And because I've been working on it 350 words a day, you know, during those times, I already had a, a good sense of where I was. But but yeah, I mean, I just set big goals because if you're going to write eight hours, in theory, you can write, well, I can write about 4,000 words, maybe a little more. And so, uh, yeah. Okay. Derek, you told us a little bit about your experiences with your sabbatical. I wondered if you, there was anything else that you could share with us about that, how you, maybe like how you prepared for it or your reflections on that time i think super super important is is you can't ignore the money so i wouldn't have done this if i didn't have a sense of what my spending is like and i don't spend a lot i don't go on cruises i don't buy new tvs i don't buy video games i, I buy very few things so that's that's something i had to have a lump of money saved up and I saved that over eight or nine years. And then to also improve my cash flow situation for two years, I went to the bank and, you know, I think I was on track to pay off my mortgage in five years, but I had the bank extended to 25. So that's the money side, right? Because I, I didn't want to this to be something where I'm worried about money while I'm away. So I've, I've maintained my frugality. The other thing is 
there's two things going on psychologically. I'm a person of routine, so I drop off my son at school. At, you know, 8.30, basically, my writing could start, so I go to a little coffee shop until the library is open. Then when the library is open, I go there. I pack myself a lunch again to save money, and I try as much as possible to stay out of the house because the house has distractions, and having that routine is is sort of a writing routine. And I mean, some days I only get three, three and a half hours of really effective work, but some days I have four and a half or even five if I'm really on fire. But it's unbelievable how exhausting writing can be when you're doing it full time, right? Because in your day job, you'll get up, you'll have to talk with people, you'll have to do other things, you change activities in general. With writing, it's you're just sitting in front of the computer the entire time with this laser focus. And I, I think the other piece psychologically for me was one of the reasons I took the, the sabbatical was I had this tremendous backlog. Well, you know, A, I want to be with my son more, but on the on the writing side, I had a tremendous backlog of stuff that needed to be written as far as I was concerned. And I felt that I was in a position of my career where I'm now at a point where pretty much everything I write will sell somewhere for an amount of money that I think is acceptable. So because of that backlog was there, I didn't want at any time to finish the sabbatical and then look back and say, oh, you know what, I wish I hadn't watched Buffy and had instead you know, written a little bit more because I, I don't want to live with any regrets. And so that that sort of psychological push means that I get up and I'm constantly thinking there are 12 months left on my sabbatical, there are 11 months left, there are 10 months left. And, and it makes me, it, it gives me a sense of pressure that if I was retired or something, I wouldn't have. And that makes me a little more productive. And again, it's being a little more I, I, I think I'm self-aware of the, the sorts of things that motivate me. Yeah. This is a question to both of you. Do you have a day in the week when you're just not going to write, or do you? does that vary? How do you sort of break that up? Uh, weekends are often full parenting activities. Um, but, you know, if that's not the case, I will generally write on the weekends too and take it as an entire day where I've got, you know, the whole thing to myself. Um, I don't usually do days off, but I have months often where I'm very low productivity. So, you know, summer break, it's useless for writing. So that's 10 weeks of the year gone. March is particularly bad because I have March break and then we take longer March breaks because, you know, I don't have to work. So we go out driving and do road trips and stuff. And so those sorts of things get in the way. But generally, as I mentioned before, it's a competition between family and and writing. Yeah. Okay. How about you, Marie? Do you have days off or are you kind of switched on and writing 24-7 all the time? <clears throat> Some of these questions are making me rethink my life choices. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. I don't consciously consciously take a day off. Um, I, I keep going as long as the juice, the energy, the creative wells are full. And, and they generally are fairly full because I, I can keep going rather easily but there are those days where all bets are off i'm not in the mood uh, i don't want to do anything i don't want to talk to anybody um and i call those my comfort days and i sit on, on my roommate's couch because she has an electric blanket and it's always cold at some point in the year in canada and uh, i just sit there and then i binge watch some terrible show on on netflix usually um 
that's as close as I come to a day off. But even then, usually about halfway through the day, I get bored because binge watching shows on Netflix is a fairly boring activity most of the time. And I'll start jotting down notes and then it seems to just rejuvenate the creative wells. Whatever I did to push too hard to keep going too much, to stare at the screen too long, it starts to go away. And then I, I just use a pen and a notebook and I, I start writing down ideas, notes, unrelated story bits that will never go anywhere. But you can kind of feel that the the, the wells, the creative wells are replenished. So I start to dip a bit in there again. But I, I don't consciously ever plan on taking a day off because that never works out for me. I'm, I'm terrible at, at the routine. Okay. Okay, question to both of you. Do you find that there are different times of the day which are more productive than other times? Yes. <laughs> Would you like to share uh, when they are? Morning. Yeah, morning for me. Uh, from about 8 a.m. or even 7 a.m. until about lunchtime. And if I push it, I can be productive till 2-ish. After 2 o'clock, it's probably best you know, if I've still got a bunch of things to do, that's when I would pick up things that require less uh, brain uh, power, like emails and blog posts. Okay, so so your best writing time is in the morning, really. Okay, how about you, Marie? I it it depends on a lot of factors. Um, my brain is not necessarily the best at following a routine, but um, basically at this point, it used to be morning. I was hardwired to write in the mornings because I knew it was my only time of the day really to do it. And I still generally write in the mornings. Um, but I, I deal with a lot of clients or people that are across the globe. So sometimes I'm up very late on conference calls or sometimes I'm up very early on conference calls. So my my writing time, my schedule isn't as reliable as it used to be when I worked nine to five. So I, I find generally my writing is, is very switchable and changeable right now as long as it's not after lunch or after a meal because then I just want to nap um, I don't but I want to <laughs> but I, I find that as long as I set it in my schedule and I tell myself okay tomorrow you're on a conference call from 5 in the morning till 7 and then you have to send off this paperwork by 9 o'clock but from 10 to noon you are writing and if I set it in my schedule then I'll follow that but I find that for me right now just because of the lifestyle I've selected I, it, it's difficult keeping a regular writing routine because I'm not taking advantage necessarily of my best brain time by doing so because my sleep patterns are all over the place okay um now Derek you very briefly mentioned your writing group a few minutes ago and I just wanted to pick up again with both of you about this how did you come to be part of a writing group and how do you most effectively give and receive in a, in a writing group so I had been in I had taken a writing workshop in 2007 which was for all genres and really it was mostly lit people and we afterwards I proposed to the people that we continue meeting and I think because the genre was different and because I was writing more than other people I was always the person bringing stuff to the group to read and I wasn't feeling very motivated so after a while I posted on Facebook that I was looking to start uh, one specifically in science fiction and fantasy and a writer called Matt Moore contacted me and then between us we started gathering up people around Ottawa, Canada who had previously been published and were gunning for being better and were prepared to do short fiction and were prepared to you know write a lot and so that group I think got up to nine people, in, including Marie, uh, a few years after we, uh, we actually, no, it was in the first or second year mm -hmm. we met Marie. 2008. Yeah, yeah. So you are in the same writing group, you two. Mm -hmm. We've critiqued each other's work. We've caused tears. <laughs> so many tears. It caused tears. I hope you got over it, Derek. Uh, yeah, I'm okay a little bit. 
Okay. He's a messy crier. I won't lie to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a, a writing group is like the writing group we designed is for us. We wanted people who are going to motivate us to write, people who will correct our work and people whom we can trust to do that. And it's not easy to find that. And so you, you actually have to set out to design it on purpose that way. Luckily, the people we did let into the group are all people who are on the same wavelength and who are, you know, good people and kind and stuff like that. And are, are these people who all live physically near each other? So can you physically meet or is it is it an online meeting? For, for us, it's uh, an Ottawa group because, I mean, Ottawa is a capital, so it'll have enough writers around that we could form a writers group. And in fact, we held some workshops uh, a few years ago and did them ourselves. And through that and some convention appearances, I think we've nucleated two or three new writers groups in Ottawa dedicated to science fiction and fantasy. And so those those junior groups are now starting to get their first and second publications as well. So so we're trying to create a community as well. Okay, that's interesting. So so it, it sounds like you've kind of your group has somehow spawned other groups or is is mentoring other groups or has been a role model for other groups. Yeah, I okay. think so. It's mostly it's mostly from Derek going to a workshop and people asking, hey, you know, do you know of another writers group? And then two or three people in the same room will ask the same question and Derek will be like, you three people talk okay. together and then they form a new writers group. Just to be really clear how they nucleate, it's, it's the Derek <laughs> magic of getting people to uh, action things. <laughs> Now, you, you mentioned there about having to trust the other people in the group and you know, some, something about the, the, their, the way they are. What are the two or three really important things that each of you looks for in the group that you're in? For me, honestly, um, and, and this is one of the things that attracted me to the East Block Irregulars, which is the name of our, our writing group, it was uh, a lack of immediate social connection. Okay. <laughs> it was very clear from the get-go that we were there to talk writing, to improve writing, and to just get the craft to where it should be as opposed to just chatting and, and getting down on ourselves for not getting picked up or whatever it was. It was very business-driven. Uh, I think it took a few years before I even was in a social connection with the rest of them. I liked them all. They were all great, but we never stopped to really chat about our lives or anything. So now we're all much more integrated socially. But for me, that was super important and also having people who are at the same level as you and have the same mindset that you know they want to keep getting better they believe that writers have to keep getting better and that there are always more opportunities to seek out there for me those two things were it just pointed to a serious the serious nature of the writers in the group and for me that was super important yeah i would i would echo that because i mean we would we would go to this group we would meet we would critique and then we'd say okay that's it everybody you know and we'd all go home and i'd known marie three years before i even knew what her phone number was or <laughs> perhaps four years before i knew what her job was uh, like it, that it's that level of business focus and it creates a strange intimacy because on one side you know very little about the other people and on the other you've seen their dreams whatever they're dreaming whatever they're hoping all of their aspirations is in the next short story they've just written and they're trusting you to to help them they're they're trusting you with showing what may have plenty of mistakes even though they believe so strongly in it and you're doing the same thing it creates a different kind of intimacy very very quickly and yet leaves other kinds of the things that you'd associate with an intimate friendship 
leaves them completely aside um, until we started becoming friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I got lots of good advice too. I remember a, a couple of people who were more experienced with me in fandom saying, you know, Derek, you should go to a conference because it's who you know. And I, for a long time, I was very resistant to the idea that anything other than the quality of your work would determine your career as a writer. And so finally, when I did go to conferences because they told me I had to, um, I was really glad they, they had made me do that. Um you kind of touched a little bit on the just how important and how kind of personal the writing is for all of us. Okay, question to both of you. Do you see your writing as being in any sense your destiny or your calling or something like that? And and does is there is does that help you at all to think in those in those terms? For me, no. Uh because that that gives it a weight that I I can't support by any any facts or any any thoughts because I could just drop it. Um, I, I could just stop it. And I think it's better for me in a way to choose the writing every day. It's not something that is imposed upon me. It's not something that is expected. It is something that I, in all of the business of life, in everything that I could accomplish or do with this finite time we have on this earth, I choose to do the writing. And that gives it more power to me because I'm the one making the choice. I like that. Okay. How about you, Derek? Yeah, I do have a destiny. I'm the chosen one. So. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder. Well, I, um, I, I, I don't think in those terms. Um, for me, it's it's just automatic. I I need to write, and I don't know where that comes from. I have no idea why it's there. It's not on either side of my family's, and yeah, that's. I I, I don't know where it comes from, but it's just something I have to do. Okay. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. It would be more fun to be on a hero's journey, though. <laughs> oh, totally, eh? We'd get yeah. and, and I bet you could you quests. could probably frame the hero's journey with a hero's a writer in, in, a, in a story somehow, couldn't you? I'm sure you could. It'd be really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and he sat down to write again. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be that would be a good challenge. <laughs> try and make try and make the writer's life interesting and compelling. Wow. <laughs> Used his mighty pen to strike out the adverb. <laughs> <laughs> Get thee behind me, adverbs, yeah. <laughs> to sort of conclude, I suppose, there's a couple of other questions I wanted to just ask you about. Um, looking after yourself as a writer, and we've touched on a lot of this, I think, in the last hour or so, but is there anything that, that you guys do to help you look after yourselves in terms of your mental or spiritual or physical health? Yes. <laughs> Correct. I think there's a number of things to do. And I think in the Navy, they have this saying, which is your priorities are float, sail, and then shoot. If you're not floating, you can't sail or shoot. And I consider writing like shooting. So the thing is, if you're to take that metaphor into real life, I think it means you've got to have a house over your head. You've got to have food on the table. You've got to have family and friends, you know, healthily around you. Once you've got that under control, then you can decide to do other things. Because as Marie said, writing is always an extra. Living is, is still is still first. But I think, you know, looking after my mental, spiritual and, and, and sort of needs, I think the achievable goals is tremendously important. Setting up a network of friendships with other writers who want the same thing as you is really, really important. And it's so important that if it's not around you and doesn't exist in your community, you should set it up. And Going to conferences and introducing yourself to people is very, very important as well. Um, and if you don't appreciate that now, you will once you've been to a few conferences. 
And then even having support electronically. So Facebook groups and Twitter and so on. I mean, I'm friends with many people who I haven't met in real life just because they're writers and I've started following them and we've started talking online. And um, I think those things are, are very important to me. But it all comes down to, you know, if, if you're stressed about, you know, your rent or your mortgage or your grocery bill, it might be hard for you to write. And in which case you have to take a look and assess how much is that impacting your your writing or whether you're even supposed to be doing writing while you're doing those things. And so, you know, there are periods of my life where I didn't do any writing uh, just because I felt that I had other things in my life that I needed to deal with first. Okay. Just to pursue that a little bit, Derek, when when you were in those periods of time and you you were obviously making decisions that were what you needed to make at that time and that's fine did you feel a, a, a pull towards writing did you miss writing during that time or did it just did that whole area of your life just kind of hibernate for a while i think it's a bit of both some of those times were when i had less confidence in my writing justifiably so because i wasn't as good a writer so there was a bit of the sort of despondency that goes into well it doesn't make a difference whether i write or not it's not going to get published um and that was in my 20s and you know also when i took up my first jobs and you know had to adjust to new cities and new duties and all this and that takes up a lot of bandwidth mm. Mm. Okay. And is there anything that you do in terms of physical well-being to look after yourself at all? Shoveling snow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are Canadian, I guess. Yes, exactly. There's no shortage. Like, yeah, it's surprising how much shape you can stay into if you have to shovel your snow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. How about you, Marie? What sort of things do you do to cover those those dimensions I mentioned of of life to try and look after yourself and keep yourself well? I also shovel snow, definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> I find for me, I I take moments to pay attention. I, I find that the hustle and bustle of life gets to be really fast, and we tend to lose track of what makes us whole as a person what keeps us going or floating as Derek mentioned in his metaphor which I quite enjoy and those things can be anything from social interactions are you getting enough of those Uh, are you getting too many of those too that's another question um but are you eating correctly because the body is is your best resource in all of this and so is your mind right it's all interlinked so if if your body isn't working well it's going to affect how much you can write so are you eating well to your capacity some people can't eat that much junk food or have to cook are you doing that um are you sleeping enough hours if you don't sleep enough hours you might get a little bit loopy like is it and it's going to impact your writing because it's the writing comes from your mind which your body supports right so you need to keep in mind that kind of wholesome nature and then what makes you I, i always think of it as like what do I need to be able to do my writing like like in any job you need uh, your computer you need your notebooks you need uh, whatever knowledge you need but you also need to have the, that physical and, and life support towards it so I always make sure that unless I'm in a writing spree when I'm in one of my writing sprees all bets are off I don't sleep I don't eat it's terrible for me but I don't do them that often because I want to live to a ripe old age um, <laughs> but if I never move if I don't eat well if I, if I don't sleep enough within a few days and now that I'm nearing my 40s, it certainly is a lot faster than it used to be, I will start to be a lot more sluggish. And then it impacts my writing for not just necessarily a day, but two, three days as I try to catch up on on what, on what that currency of, of life 
energy, if you will, that I traded off in the earlier days. So uh, I try to be a lot more aware of taking care of myself and my own needs so that I can, so that the writing can benefit. It, it's a bit of a balancing act, which I suck at, but you know, I try. <laughs> <laughs> a <Okay>. for effort. <laughs> a for effort. Well done. <laughs> D for execution. <laughs> But you keep trying. Exactly. I, I always say don't do not do as I do. Do more like I say. Um, I have a healthy dose of ability to get near the cliff edge, put my toes over the edge of the cliff and stare down and kind of stay there for a while just before falling to your doom or whatever or being in free fall. And I can still function to some degree. A lot of people should never get close to the cliff. So you have to know how much can you take instability, how much instability you can take in your life. That that will save you a lot of mm. hassle. Just be honest with yourself. There's no need to play or pretend at what you can and can't accomplish. The more honest you are with what you can do, the better it will be for your artistic pursuits. So we pretty much come to the end of the questions that, that I was going to ask you guys. Um, I just wondered if there was anything else that either of you wanted to share just in terms of things that you'd learnt about how to live well as a writer? I think you need to free up the time and you need to be able to set some boundaries around your life. You know, I marvel at the writers with whom I'm friends on Facebook who talk about, oh, I just got this newest game and I played all weekend and now, you know, and or, or somebody who's binge watching TV or something. And, you know, those are all things that I cut out of my life a long time ago that have allowed me to produce a lot. It's not for everybody, but I would say that cutting out things that are maybe lower priority, like would you rather watch uh, Six Feet Under or would you rather, um, you know, write? Those th that sort of math was always in my head at all times, and so I cut out TV very early in my life, and also video games. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the whole world is set right now to turn us into consumers, so you have to make your choice. Are you going to be a creator or a consumer? To what degree? Because it is a lot easier to be a consumer, because you can just sit down and, and consume, as opposed to creating. So yeah, Derek says smart things. I'd like to point that out. I think one of the important things to remember too is the writing should be fun at least 51% of the time. <laughs> it should <laughs> Don't expect it to be fun all the time. A lot of the time it won't be fun. Uh, if it feels fulfilling, at least that's good. If it just feels like something that you're doing because you feel you should do and you hate every single second of it, then maybe think about something else because you should like it I, I always think i don't like it every day some days i just want to throw my computer out the window because it's not cooperating but 51 percent of the time for me it, i have to be having fun uh, and i have a very loose definition of fun but you should at least find the writing fulfilling don't just pursue it because at some point you felt you should or, or you wanted to pursue it because it, it is important enough to you because you will sacrifice a lot for it so you have to decide if it's worth it OK, I'd like to ask you both as well now, if you could just tell us a little bit, each of you, about uh, what you're working on at the moment and how people can access your work and find out more about you. Well, for me right now, I'm working. At, I just had a novella come out in one of my series based in an Ed Greenwood setting called Helma. Uh, so it's a novella that follows a, uh, a novel from last year, Helma, Eye of Glass. And the novella Helma, Honey Boys Aunt just came out there. They're fun, quirky stories. And uh, do check them out if you like fun, quirky demons <laughs> and people without bodies who want to be models. Um, it's totally for you then. Uh, I'm working on a few projects right now. I've got uh, short stories. I've got a novel that I'm just finalizing up and some other cool stuff I can't talk of right now, but I will talk about them on social media. So you can follow me.
follow me on Facebook or on Twitter at, at Marie Billadeau and also my website, which is very boringly www.mariebillado.com. Okay. Uh, what about you, Derek? What, what are you up to at the moment and how can people access your work? I think since the last time we talked, I've gotten an agent, a literary agent, and um, we signed a few months ago a two-book deal. I can't announce what it is yet, but I'm very happy with it. I've also sold on the first book, The Chinese Rights, and some other rights are being sold as well, so that's all going really well. And at some point, I'm sure I will be tweeting about it at, at Derek Trinskin, D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N. And... Yeah, I haven't been doing much short fiction. Last year, I wrote 290,000 words in novels. So that's about two and a half novels. And one of them is already sold, and I'm cleaning up the others now. And and lots and lots of projects, but lots and lots of... Like, things are going well. Things are going well. And so most most of this will be announced on Twitter when when the time... When I'm, I'm allowed to talk about it. Okay, well, I think we're done. Derek and Marie, thank you again so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Catch you later. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.